Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, S.L. Price, author of Playing Through the Whistle. S.L. Price, author of Playing Through the Whistle, why did you decide to write about Aliquippa, Pennsylvania? I went up to <coughs> Aliquippa for Sports Illustrated uh, in the fall of 2010. An editor at SI's grandfather um, had been a union man in Aliquippa, um, and his whole family was from there. His parents went to high school there. And um, he basically said, um, my hometown or my, my family's hometown is this incredible place that has fallen on you know, these very hard times because of the steel mill. It produced Mike Ditka. Uh, Tony Dorsett, Darrell Rivas, all these incredible football players, they're still winning championships. Would you be interested in going up there? And I went up and uh, from Washington, D.C., my home, and uh, wrote a fairly straightforward, although the longest piece I'd ever written for Sports Illustrated um, in my 22 years there. But it was fairly straightforward in the sense that it was about a steel mill town, that exactly that, had fallen on hard times, but they still were producing great champions. and. Um, and living through what for many people would be a, a kind of hell and, and yet still doing that. Um, and for only one of the two times in my time at Sports Illustrated, I, I, I just found that I had not, even though it was the longest story I'd ever written for SI, it wasn't nearly enough. It wasn't just a, a town um, important only for football. I found that there were uh, many other factors and, and historical moments that I, I really wanted to delve into and, and I thought were reflective of the American experience. When you first arrived in town, you parked your car and got out and walked around, what were your first impressions? Well, it's, um, it's, it's, it, it is a town that's fallen on hard times. I mean, especially the downtown area of Franklin Avenue. A lot of the stores were boarded up, uh, most of them actually. Um, the school is a kind of jewel because it had been refurbished recently um, and is beautiful up on the hill, although it is the, f it's, it, the, the high school itself, the original Aliquippa High School has now been torn down and, and what, was then, what was then the middle school is now the high school, middle school. It's one facility, um, but the town um, is in really bad shape. And, and of course, the, the, air, the seven and a half mile track down by the Ohio River, this, where the steel mill was, is, is there are some businesses down there, but it's not bustling nearly with the activity that it once did in its heyday. And um, but what I did find was, I mean, there was a lot of pain in this town. There was a this, since the mills went down in, in, in the mid '80s, um, drugs and crime have become an, a massive factor in Aliquippa. But um, it's got the sort of benefit and the negatives of, of being a small town in that everybody knows everything about everybody. And as a result, um, you know, everybody, uh, everybody knew somebody who had lost a house. Everybody knew if somebody had lost a job. Everybody knew if somebody had gone to jail. And as a result, there was a very low level of BS uh, or spin. Uh, people were very honest about 
the pain they'd gone through. And I think once I had made it clear that I felt that this was an important place, and I do in, in, in American history, um, people wanted me to tell their story and were very upfront about the experiences they'd gone through pro and con um, uh, in Aliquippa. How often did you come away from an interview thinking, wow, well, I learned a lot there? Oh, gosh. I, I got to tell you, it, it was, I, I've spent a lot of time in Cuba uh, uh, in the 90s, and I wrote a book about Cuba called Pitching Around Fidel. And um, when I got to Cuba, day after day, there were these incredible, incredible stories that people would tell me, and I'd look around and think, I, I can't believe no other reporters down here. This place is a reporter's goldmine. The people not only were so emotional and honest, uh, but their stories were inherently and incredibly dramatic. I really felt the same way in Aliquippa. Um, look, Western PA is, is a great journalistic hotbed in many ways. The, this Aliquippa and the, the fate of the steel mill towns and, and the entire development and rise and fall of Western Pennsylvania has been, has been chronicled beautifully by the Pittsburgh papers. And the Aliquippa story, <coughs> excuse me, have been told very well by the local papers uh, for a long time. Um, but I, I really felt like, um, as someone who came in from a national magazine, that the story hadn't really been told, um, certainly not Aliquippa's as, as, as in, in any recent um, depth. And um, I couldn't believe there were no other reporters around. The, and like I said, um, every day uh, people were telling me their stories, and they were astonishing. Um, and it really was, uh, as a reporter, um, incredibly gratifying, not, not just because you had great stories to tell, but that people trusted you with the story to tell. How did you know how much to put in the book and how much to leave out? I mean, you sort of weave <laughs> the football and the history of the steel mill together. Well, I, and, and not just that, but uh, race relations, immigration, the great migration from the South. Um, you know, I, let, me, let me make myself clear on this. It was, I went there thinking Aliquippa was a place that just produced great football players, but over and over I got the sense more than once that, that this is where America kept happening for the last 50, 100 years. Again, not just immigrants coming from, uh, the, the, the stream of immigrants coming through Ellis Island, but then the great migration of blacks from, from, uh, um, from the South. I mean, Aliquippa, like much of Western Pennsylvania, but Aliquippa is sort of the de facto capital of, of Beaver County, um, uh, you know, really felt that. It was a town that, that came from nothing and, and all of a sudden is experiencing sort of the front edge of the American dream. And then, um, you know, there were, there were obviously the great union management battles of the 20s and 30s, and um, Aliquippa wasn't just another union town. Aliquippa was at, was at the cutting edge of that. The Jones and Laughlin steel mill uh, was running a de facto police state. It was known as Little Hell, uh, Little Siberia, uh, to union organizers. And um, at one point, the JNL uh, uh, police uh, kidnapped a, a union organizer and, and had him committed to an insane asylum. Uh, so. You know, it was very extreme, dramatic stuff. And then on the flip side of that, um, the Wagner Act, which is basically uh, is the law of the land in terms of, uh, became the law of the land in terms of uh, legitimizing unions and, and um, the ability to protest in, 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 uh, and go on strike in, in private industry was um, basically the test case for that in the Supreme Court was, was the Aliquippa 10. So, and then there were, Every community has had racial problems and drug problems, but in Aliquippa, the racial problems became race riots, and the schools shut down, uh, and, it, and it was affecting the football team. And then the football team helped solve those problems to a certain extent. And meanwhile, the drug problems come in, and, and it's not just 
you know, low-level uh, drug infestation. Infestation. It is uh, in, in incredible uh, gang activity, and and uh, a crack cocaine epidemic sort of takes over the town. And for example, Tony Dorsett, who was from uh, one of the most famous football players from Aliquippa, although he went to Hopewell High right next door, his nephew was running the biggest crack ring in town, and the crack ring was was broken by. Uh, uh, a former Aliquippa quarterback attached to the uh, uh, the DEA. So all these things sort of weave together in very dramatic, interesting ways. And it was a task to try and figure out how to do that. And in the end, I I, I just kept chronologically trying to tell the story as straight as I possibly could, not making it just a football book, but a book about many strains in the history of this town. And in, in, in essence, it's a biography of Aliquippa and a special American place. For people who don't know, where is it? Uh, Twenty some odd miles uh, downriver, out, uh, outside of Pittsburgh, um, uh, along the Ohio River uh, in Beaver County, and like I said, it was essentially the, uh, like I said, the de facto capital of, of, of Beaver County. It was the biggest commercial hub for for a long time, and and it was about the size at its peak of twenty seven to thirty thousand souls. It's now down to about ninety five hundred. And Jones and Lachlan was the big steel mill at the time. How big? Was it? it well, it, it ranged. It, it was the one of the biggest integrated steel mills in the world. Um, it was seven and a half miles along the uh, Ohio River, um, essentially built on the um, on the remains of an old amusement park uh, uh, that was built for by the railroad to to attract people in the late eighteen hundreds. And um, Jones and Laughlin feeling constrained on the south side of, of Pittsburgh was looking for, uh, basically was getting too big and needed more land and, and, a, and a bigger plant. And it built this town, um, essentially bought up all this property and um, created and built from scratch what was supposed to be a utopian town uh, as, as, as one of its, uh, one of the uh, Jones uh, uh, families put it, you know, the best place for a, a steel worker to live and work. Um, it was supposed to be, a, it, it was created almost through this utopian impulse, and there was 12 plans. It was divided up into 12 plans, and the different ethnicities lived in different parts of the town. Um, Serbs in one place, Croats in the other, Poles, Irish, uh, Italians in West Aliquippa, um, uh, blacks, of course, in a different section of town. And that was, it was both, um, uh, obviously, um, organic in the sense that people would, would settle around their own uh, people when they first came to town, families and cousins would go there first, and then others would come in and build around it. And you wanted to be around that, but it also uh, served the J and L well because it, it it created divisions and and kept people separate and created hostilities that um, were were good for keeping uh, union organizing at a minimum. Oh, there were hostilities between the ethnic groups. Sure, this is the twenties. This about? is a, yeah, tens and twenties, absolutely. And 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 I don't mean open warfare, but but. Different languages. I mean, simply the, the 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 you knew, and of course, not only different languages. And and Serbs and Croats certainly had tensions and, and would go at it uh, physically and and else, uh, otherwise. But also in Plant Six, for example, that's where the uh, the union bosses and management lived. And and uh, blacks certainly weren't allowed to even go in there, much less live there. And um, you know, and and you know, there were certain pools reserved for for blacks and certain for whites and. Um, uh, it was very much a, a, a balkanized town, for lack of a better word. The steel mills would hire black workers in the 20s? Oh, yeah. In fact, 
uh, you know, very much so uh, after World War I, um, there was a labor shortage because uh, immigration sort of stopped from Europe, and not stopped, but certainly slowed down. And, um, and so uh, J&L and other steel mills would send out agents down south to bring up uh, uh, and attract black workers from, from the south. And that, that really was the big push and pull of the north for, that, that created the great migration, of the first, one of the first waves of it. Did you ever figure out why Aliquippa has produced so many good football players? See, this is the this is the ultimate question. I mean, no, I, there, there's no hard and set rule. I mean, look, it is it, it is a strange thing. Uh, Western PA is is known for great football, and every town has you know Beaver Falls has Joe Namath, and another you know Joe Montana is Monongahela, and and um, you know Johnny Unitas and. The list goes on and on. And is it known nationally for that, or do we just think that because we're from Pennsylvania? No, no, it's absolutely no. In fact, uh, Ernie Acorsi, the the um, uh, the great uh, Giants general manager, told me, you know, he he went to Aliquippa specifically because he wanted to know what what the heck is is in this place or at this place that produced not just one good or very good NFL player, but four. Probably, you know, two Hall of Famers for sure, and Mike Ditka and, 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 and Tony Dorsett, and I would say Darrell Rivas and Ty Law also. But then also Pete Maravich, Henry Mancini, uh, Jesse Steinfeld, the Surgeon General, uh, the first black president of the NCAA, James Frank, um, you know, Joe Letary, who is, is a visual artist who, who's created the looks of Lord of the Rings and, and, and uh, Avatar. Mervyn Steeles, who wrote, Could It Be I'm Falling in Love? And not only that, but in the midst of, uh, he, uh, Melvin Steeles and Mervyn Steeles, the twin brothers, wrote that song in the midst of race riots in Aliquippa, and Melvin Steeles was accused, he was a, a teacher in the junior high at the time, I believe, or the high school, can't remember, but he was a teacher in Aliquippa, and he was accused of fomenting uh, uh, race rioting. And he wrote this eloquent letter to the paper. And in the midst of all that tension, he and his brother sit down and write one of the great pop standards of the early 70s, Could It Be I'm Fallen in Love? And it was about his woman who's still his wife to this day. Um, it, it's a place that, that to answer your question, I, I, I think part of it is, is, first of all, it was the biggest town in, in, in uh, Beaver County, a place, a hotbed of, of football. Secondly, it was uh, the geography of it. It was an incredibly tight, t tight confines, and you had real friction between the groups and competition between all these different areas. They all had sports teams, and they all funneled into the high school, and so there was an incredible competition. The other thing is, and, that, and this starts with Mike Ditka, who, who we all know is sort of the, the, the fiery former player and, and, and head coach and now commentator. Um, he really set the tone for this sort of uh, manic intensity that, that Aliquippa has sort of followed ever since. Not only are they great football players, but they're sort of larger-than-life figures. They're, they're big personalities, and, and, and they're big targets, and, they're, and, they, and they have to back it up. The last thing is that in Aliquippa, more than almost any other place, uh, there's no mercy on these kids, and, and uh, if you, you better win. Um, and, and that has its upside, and, it, and we know it has its downsides, but uh, essentially you'd be told over and over, and I was told this continually by ex-players, if we lost a game in Aliquippa, uh, you know, we heard about it immediately, and it was like, you suck. What the hell are you doing losing? And that wasn't coming from a random fan. That was coming from dad, your uncle, your cousin, all of whom who had played in Aliquippa and really expected you to meet that standard. So, so there's that. And then there's also the steel mill obviously created this incredible toughness in the area, and 
since the steel mill went down, football has really become uh, one of the main, if not the main, ways out and, and, and the way to actually uh, create a life for yourself outside of Aliquip. I do have to back up to Mel Mervyn Steeles for a second because he was a guard. You have a, some brief biographies of the players of, mm -hmm. of your, the cast yep. of characters in your book. Uh, he was a guard for Aliquippa High School basketball class of 64. He was the songwriter for Could It Be I'm Falling in Love, 1972. Worked at the Ste Seamless Tube Department at Aliquippa from 1966 from 1976. So he wrote this song that is nationally famous that everybody in the right. world can hum and yet for four years after that he was still working at the yeah. steel mill and, and his brother was a teacher for forever they they went to philadelphia after college they went together They're twins melvin and mervin and uh, they went to uh cheney state and and um and then went to philadelphia for a while to to learn at the uh the knee of some of the great philadelphia songwriters and went back to Al aliquippa but they weren't making the money that they could um, out of songwriting. Um, they did have some other songs like Honey Bee that was sung by Gloria Gaynor. Um, but essentially, they weren't making big money off this. And, and Melvin, um, who, who wrote the lyrics, uh, was a school teacher in Aliquippa and a, and a very fine one. And, and Mervyn, who wrote the music, uh, worked in the steel mill. And they were part of, of, of this town. Did and you end up meeting them? I did, and well, I spoke to them both by phone in, in researching the book, and just recently I was um, in Pittsburgh at the Carnegie Library doing a reading, and uh, I, uh, a lecture, my first and only lecture, uh, as it was called, um, and uh, I was talking about how many great people had come from Aliquippa, how many names, and trying to familiarize themselves to it, and I leaned forward and I said, I think you know this song. Could it be I'm falling in love? And I sang it in the microphone and got a nice laugh. And, and the gentleman in the front row put up his hand and said, I wrote that song. And I had not met him in person. Wow. <laughs> uh, and I, and it, it, it was one of the few times in my life where I said the right thing at the right time. Essentially, I said, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Dr. Melvin Steeles. And, and he got a big <laughs> hand. And it was really gratifying that he had come out. Um, and and, saw, and so, so, yeah, I, I, these people, really extraordinary group of people. And... And the other thing is, is that Aliquippa really stays with them. It stays with me, and I'm not from there. It's, it's uh, my family's really tired of me saying, do you, do you know who's from Aliquippa? <laughs> you know, but no matter how many, uh, where are these people? I've talked to people all over the country, Phoenix and California. You know, when they had left Aliquippa, and they have to leave Aliquippa because they had to find work elsewhere or, and to succeed. And but it's really in their bones, and and there's a great pride. Uh, even those who came through the roughest times there. Um, feel it as home and they can't get away from it. I have to read this one part. You say that uh, this was in 1983. Joe Paterno, mm. it had been more than two decades since the Penn State head coach, bitter over losing Mike Ditka to Pitt, had washed his hands of the town. So yeah. he was in a snit over losing Mike Ditka, so they just never recruited in he, Aliquippa? He basically, yeah, I mean, he, 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 well, he certainly didn't give it much much of his attention. Yeah, and, and, and the big reason was that um, you know, Ditka was uh, uh, a very good uh, tight end uh, coming out of high school, and um, Paterno was uh, was hot on his trail, and his parent and, and Mike's parents liked Joe and, and thought that would be a good place for him to go, and and uh, and, and in fact, Paterno came for a couple of days to the training camp. Uh, Mike was staying, sh trying to stay in shape over the summer, and. Uh, and Paterno basically was coming to install schemes or help the coaching staff, quote unquote. But actually, everybody knew that he was there to make sure that he didn't lose 
Mike Ditka, and, and, and Joe was a, uh, an assistant at the time. And uh, what happened was um, Ditka, uh, one, of, one of the, the Zerniches, uh, Zernich family were this former basketball players and uh, great civic leaders in Aliquippa and, and, and very much stewards of the, pit, the, the Aliquippa to Pitt pipeline. And uh, they essentially made it clear that, that Mike could go and be a dentist at, at, at Pitt, uh, get, get dental training uh, to become a dentist. And uh, uh, and basically paved the way for him to get, go to Pitt, and and so Mike Ditka ended up going to Pitt, which became this incredible joke in Alquippa to this day, which is, which is the idea of Mike Ditka being a dentist, and you know basically you know he, he would knock your tooth out apparently, and then and then fix it for you. But um, <laughs> thankfully for all of us, he didn't become a dentist. I could probably just flip to any page and ask you about a vignette because there's so many people in, and vignettes in here, but uh, you, you say pre professional football began in Pittsburgh in 1892. Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, it was there was a, uh, uh, these amateur athletic associations had their, their sort of amateur football games, and then they, uh, pro football basically, um, uh, there was a, uh, a competition of paying off a player to secretly pay under the table uh, to play for uh, these two athletic associations. "Quote unquote," and uh, the payment was written down and is now seen as evidence for the first professionalism of, of uh, pro football, and 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 uh, essentially the first not NFL but but pro football player in, in, in Western PA. When did football start in Aliquippa? Uh, it started in 1914 officially. They, they the the high school uh, started a few years earlier, and they they gave it a couple runs. Uh, and it just sort of fell apart from lack of interest over, over a two-year period. And then in 1914, they sort of kicked off. And uh, but I believe they had 100, 100 to nothing lost their first year in one game. And, and, uh, and you know, it took a while. Um, you know, interestingly enough, you know, Jackie Robinson in 1947 was, of course, lauded for integrating, um, you know, Major League Baseball. But, but uh High school football, not just in not just in Aliquippa, throughout Western PA, I wouldn't say it was colorblind because colorblindness was not certainly uh, the order of the day, but very quickly within the first couple of years, um, there was there was one or two black players on Aliquippa's football team throughout. You say Pitt and Penn State did not integrate their football rosters until the mid 1940s. But two years after Aliquippa's team's inception, a condor, the school newspaper photo of the 1916 squad includes for the first time one unnamed black player. Right. And, and it was not a matter of stated principle. And by the way, this is at a time when, you know, in the 20s, uh, the Ku Klux Klan was very active in, in Pennsylvania. Um, and certainly uh, there were Klan meetings and crosses burning in Aliquippa in the 20s. Um, but it never carried over to sports. It's, it, the, the sports was sort of considered a safe zone and, and you just didn't touch it. For whatever reason, I mean, in, in the mid '30s, uh, uh, one of the co-captains, uh, Major Powell, was uh, 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 of Aliquippa High School, was was uh, a black lineman, and very well regarded and incredibly respected. So, and again, don't don't get me wrong, there was great tension between blacks and whites in Aliquippa, but um, for some reason, uh, sports was was important. You were you were you were carrying the the. The banner of the town, and we wanted our best talent out there, and and they did, regardless of race. And you had all of them together, at least when it came to, to sporting activities, carrying the banner of Aliquippa elsewhere. But they weren't the only town doing that. I mean, Washington, PA had a had a great player as well, and 
uh, it was known for it. So high school football, in a weird way, was, was, was ahead of the curve, ahead of the pros. What would game day have looked like in 1916? Boy, I think it was, I mean, they, they were clearing alleys for practice, you know, like, like vacant lots for practice. So it was an incredibly rudimentary uh, and, and dangerous game. I mean, really. Um, and like, you know, we're talking bare-fisted, bare-skulled, bare, bare bare-everything, bare no, very little in terms of padding. Um, and essentially, this is, a, 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 for a long time, Alacopa wasn't very good. And their first, um, their first championship, uh, WPIL championship, was not in football, was in baseball. And then their biggest, their first state championship was in basketball. And they, they're still uh, a very good basketball uh, school, uh, uh, but, but football really has, is in the bones of the town in a way that other, no other sport is. So since we're talking about the 19-teens and 1920s, yeah. what, would, uh, what was going on at the mill at the time, and what was town life like? Well, it was, it was a very uh, hard scrabble existence. I mean, uh, the mill was, first of all, the mill work was extremely dangerous. Uh, you had two or three men, uh, sometimes boys, being maimed or, 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 or dying in the mill every year on average. Um, uh, the work was dangerous, was dirty. Um, the workers had no power. Um, they were, uh, the, the JNL management had control over uh, the water system, they, they, over the housing, so if they didn't like someone's attitude, they weren't just losing a job, they'd lose their house and be out in the street. Um, uh, the, there was a, uh, a Crow Island, um, uh, they, there was a, uh, an island in the, in the Ohio River right off, right offshore. Island is, is, is stretching it, but there was a little, uh, a couple of man-made bridges just, just to get over there. And uh, because it was in the river, the blue laws of Pennsylvania didn't apply. So they could play sports on the weekend, and, and that's where they had gardens and, and uh, gardening and, and, and activities out there. And it was one of the few places you could sort of get away from, from mill life and, and, and have entertainment, as it were. Um, but overall, it was, I mean, this is, this is a tough, tough existence. And um, it really wasn't, an, and, and it wasn't until really the post-war, post-World War II period where, where Aliquippa and other towns like it became, uh, for lack of a better word, or, uh, the closest thing I, I think you're ever going to find to a workman's paradise. I mean, the, the whole idea of, you know, Marx saying it or Ingalls, you know, the idea of a workman's paradise is, is kind of a joke. But, but this was a place and time in, in 19, after the, the victories of the unions, and um, you had an entire class of people who they could come in with just a, a thick accent and a shovel and, 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 and get a job at the mill and be able to provide for their family, buy a house for twenty twenty five thousand dollars $25,000, have time off during the year, and, and also be part of the American experiment, the American ladder. They, they were part of it, um, and a respected political class in terms of political clout. Um, so it was, um, for 30 years, you had a town that, that after the sort of war, the, the tensions of the 20 and the labor problems of the 30s and 20s um, and after the, the horrors of World War II, because Aliquippa, like many towns, lost a lot of its, a lot of its boys overseas, um, you had a, a, a town that 
really, if, if you ask people about J&L and, and Aliquippa today, former workers, they, they look upon it fondly because J&L became the Jones and Laughlin Mill, uh, which became really a paternalistic and, and really a, a community partner that, um, that really was part of the town's growth and, 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 and its feeling as a special place. How long did it take for the unions to establish themselves? Well, it w I mean, it took. Uh, was I, it ugly? It was very ugly. I mean, I mean, you had, like I said, you you had um, the def the police force in town was the coal. There was the coal and iron police all over the state, but um, JNL's was particularly tough and savage uh, in in the order of the day. Um, Harry Mauk, M A U K, was was sort of a running um, plant security, quote unquote, and he he was in charge of of, of busting any kind of union activity. Um, there were other uh, towns even across the across the river, um, Ambridge, uh, which is a very similar town in many ways to Aliquippa, but was much more liberal and sort of seen as a hotbed for really communism, communist activity, and communist-based or organizers for, for labor unions. And, and, and Aliquippa was really closed off to that. Um, uh, during the strikes of uh, 1919, uh, I, I believe there were, Aliquippa wasn't even affected. They, they, the, the mill never shut down, and, and, and uh, Tom Girdler, who ran the plant, um, essentially he was the, the manager on, on site, and, and J&L's top hand there basically said uh, he, he ran it like a, a little dictatorship, and, and what of it, and, and he was very proud of it. And, um, and if you went crosswise in any way with Aliquippa police, I mean, the union... They were they were riding motorcycles into into um, into people's houses when two or three people would get together to talk because they thought they suspected them of union organizing. People were arrested and kicked out of town, um, and and union union organizers were beaten and 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 tossed out of town regularly until uh, really the mid 30s. On the on the flip side of that, you talk about a time when the the union bosses in the shop were so powerful that you had to curry favor with them if you wanted to keep Yeah, yeah. I mean, eventually the pendulum swung. Uh, you know, the union, especially in, uh, in the post-war period, um, uh, the steel union and, and unions in general, the, essentially they had that power as well to sort of hire and fire. Um, and, um, you know, abuses eventually... Uh, <laughs> ensued there as well. You, you give any man power, <laughs> uh, especially to hire and fire somebody, um, and uh, uh, if they're not watched, uh, negative things are going to happen. And certainly in Aliquippa, that happened as well. You, you talked to a gentleman by the name of Gino Paroli, you quote. Yeah. The biggest concern for unions in the 1970s was protecting people who didn't want to work. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I was told over and over about stories about, um, you know, the mill... Once the unions, I mean, they, they were on a great winning streak, uh, you know. And, and look, it was, part of it was in the great historical swing, the great pendulum. Um, at one point, management had all the cards and, and was incredibly abusive. And, and the unions sort of got force of law behind them uh, in the 30s. And for a while, there, were, there was sort of this, this swing of the pendulum where, where many very needed reforms. And, and again, Gina Paroli is one of them, said, the biggest thing the unions gave us was dignity. Um, but, and, and, and early on, that's exactly what the unions did in terms of safety and, and decent working hours and conditions. But 
uh, eventually that, that led to abuses and, and the union also uh, essentially had this power and, and um, it, it, it made for difficult times. And, and essentially the two of them couldn't get together because there was such hostility between, between management and labor. And um, it, a lot of that was, has led to the demise of the steel industry. When was the peak? When the steel company and the unions and the football team and the town were all at, at the top? Well, I, I would say the, the peak of it was probably 19, early 1960s. Um, you had, uh, this is before really race became a problem, before white flight um, really hit the town. You had John F. Kennedy uh, visiting um, essentially just a day or two before he got the news of the missiles uh, uh, in Cuba. Um, and he came to town and people came together. Uh, there was an incredible rally downtown. Carl Ashman was the great um, and originally great um, father figure of, of, of Aliquippa coaching. Um, and this, the 1964 was the last of his um, uh, titles. He retired right after that. And so you had really in, in some ways in the late 50s, early, early 60s, Henry Mancini came back for a great day held from him there. You had, um, everything was in equipoise. You, you had a, a moment where, where the workers were doing great, where people were making money, where, where the mill was, was churning out steel, where Aliquippa's importance politically and socially um, uh, really was recognized. Um, and, and, and more importantly than that, um, it, it had been 10, 20 years in the making. And so at this point, there was a real confidence among the working class in Aliquippa that, you know, we're part of this. We're part of the American dream. We're part of the American experiment. Um, my, uh, many, many people told me that their fathers were worked in the mill and, 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 and they would tell their kids, I'm working here so you don't have to. Um, I, I, and, and, and if kids, you know, would come home from college for the summer and work there and they'd say, God, you know, this is, this is a pretty good job. You know, you get, you're here for 30 years, maybe I'll, and, and over and over I was told, uh, that, that fathers would tell their bosses, do whatever you do, get these, get my kid the worst job he possibly can get so that he hates it here because they, they, they saw it as a stepping stone. They saw it as a, as a way to leverage their family's fortunes upward. Um, and that in essence, it is, was only a 30-year, 35-year um, uh, blip in the American, in the life of the American working man over the last 300 years. I mean, and, and um, I, I dare say it's, it's no longer the case. I mean, and that's, frankly, that I think that a lot of what was cut loose, um, the forces that were cut loose in the 80s when that white working class was, was lost its place on the American ladder, uh, those forces were never really truly addressed and they really came home to roost in these, this last election. I want to ask you about some more people in uh, the book, but I want to ask about sure. yourself first. You are a senior writer at Sports Illustrated? I am. How uh, does somebody get a gig like that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was, uh, well, I, I went to the University of North Carolina. Uh, I graduated from there. I went to the University of Connecticut for my first two years and then transferred. Uh, got a job. I covered Michael Jordan as a sophomore. I was a, I was a junior at the time uh, and was at North Carolina when they happened to have incredible sports. Um, top five football team uh, and uh, great baseball players as well. Um, 
and Michael Jordan and Dean Smith and uh, James Worthy and all those uh, luminaries of, of UNC basketball. So I got a job at um, the Sacramento Bee and I worked there for six years. Uh, and then I went to the Miami Herald for, uh, for four years. And uh, in 1994, uh, one of the managers at Sports Illustrated was from Miami and he subscribed to the Miami Herald. And he called me up and said, um, uh, hey, you wanna go out for a beer? I'd never met him before. And most times when in newspapers and journalism, uh, the way to get a job was you, you'd get called and someone would ask you to see your clips and then you'd send them clips and then there'd be this dance and if they liked the clips, they'd fly you in. And, and so this was a very strange phone call from a man I didn't know and, uh, and a magazine I, I knew, but I certainly wasn't familiar with anybody who worked there. And I went to a, a, a bar around the corner from my house and had a beer with him and at the end of it, he offered me a job. How long ago was that? 1994, so 22 years. So uh, is it as much of a dream job as it sounds like? Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, it's sort of like, um, I mean, sports writing is, it's funny because the, the uninitiated always think, oh, you get to go to a game and, and, and meet players and watch games and eat the food. And, and that's essentially your job. And then you type something up. But, you know, like any job, it's work. Uh, you know, it's, it happens to be great work. And I am incredibly fortunate because I'm one of those people who I love to travel and I love to ask people uh, questions and I would do that for nothing and instead be, instead of um, you know being that weird guy who, who buttonholes you and says, wants to ask you questions about yourself and you're like trying to back away from him because I work for Sports Illustrated people are like oh well I'll answer that question and so I'm lucky that but it's 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 been a pretty good uh, situation I have to say how do you get your assignments um, it, it's really 50-50, probably. Um, uh, I'll suggest stories and, and we'll run them up the flagpole and they'll see uh, uh, whether people like them or not uh, in, in the office. And, and, um, and, and then it comes the other way. And like, like the Aliquippa story, um, I mean, this book came to me from an editor who said, hey, would you be interested in doing this? And I was, absolutely. So, so it's just, it's back and forth. Why do you think sports and football in particular are such a big deal in America? Well, I think, I mean, part of it now, and I think, you know, I think, first of all, the idea that we're a balkanized, fractured country, um, somehow people think this is a new idea. Um, and, you know, there's always been tensions. There's always been uh, incredible <laughs> balkanization and, and, and division in the United States, either geographic, racial, um, class, however you want to put it. Sports frankly, is, has long been one of the few places of community uh, where people come together of all those different races and um, classes and creeds and, and can scream their head off about their town. I mean, it's tribal. It's, it's about my town versus your town, uh, my school versus your school. Um, I think one reason it, it keeps enduring no matter what the money is is that there's an essential honesty, or at least we perceive an essential honesty in the physical nature. What I mean is, is that you, we think we know something about these people because because they're put under extreme pressure, under what is essentially false conditions. I mean, it's a, it's a false construct. We create an aquarium, right? Essentially, put a lot, bunch of stands around it, train people from a very young age, and then put them under the in, intense scrutiny, intense pressure, and say, go out and perform. And so, uh, we think there's a certain honesty as a result of that. They 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 show us a bit of who they are and and a little bit of who we are. By, by how they perform under those conditions. But I think there's also an essential honesty in the fan. I mean, when people are screaming 
um, and crying over the Cubs winning or, 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 or their town winning. They're, they're very close to who they are. They're not lying about it. They can't lie because they're, because they're so caught up in the moment. So as a writer, it's, it's very irresistible uh, subject matter because, because you feel like you're getting to the core of who people are. And it's also reflective of the culture. The great thing about sports is, is that you can write about race, drugs, civic planning, uh, uh, stadium deals, uh, government, politics, sex. And if people think they're just reading about a game, they'll read about it. And, and, and there are very few other places in the paper, very few sections in the paper, very few where, where you can sort of learn and understand about the culture um, and, and, and just think you're seeing, uh, you know, two teams going at it and, and with a winner and a loser. You mentioned Carl Ashman. Mm. Talk about him a little bit more. Well, Carl Ashman was a, uh, came, he came from Brownsville, uh, PA originally. He was at a, a high school there and he was hired um, he was the son of a glassblower from Austria, uh, and he was hired in Aliquippa uh, in the 40s. And he, be, he sort of your classic, um, if we want to, uh, old school Lombardi-like coach. Um, he was very much into um, what he called his ugly men, which were the linemen. He said, if you have a line, then you have a football team. And he was a very traditional, grinded out, um, uh, three yards in a cloud of dust type coach. And, and you know, he was known for uh, not exactly <laughs> his, his sympathy, at least with his players. I mean, uh, um, Frank Morocco, one of his, one of, who became a coach at Aliquippa, one of, one of the greats uh, at Aliquippa, told me a story about how one time he took a punt to the face. There was no face mask and broke his nose. And, uh, and uh, Carl Ashman came up and, you know, put his hands on the, on the nose and, and said, get back out there, you know, and... and and uh, Don Yanessa is another great coach. His brother Gene told me, uh, you know, he had separated his shoulder, and and, 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 Ashman, and Ashman just said, you know, I don't, I don't want to hear it. Yeah, he said, my shoulder. I heard it in the game, and I can barely pick up my arm. Ashman grabbed Yanessa's arm, twisted it one way and then the other. There ain't nothing wrong with that goddamn arm. Now get out there. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, but he was, you know, interestingly enough, he he himself was more fragile than people knew. He had um, heart trouble, and it, and it ran in his family. He had what his family called a paper heart. Um, uh, just really, really delicate. Um, his daughter died of it uh, at a young age. And, um, you know, he had his moments of compassion also. Um, but he was the guy who made Ditka. I mean, Mike, Mike Ditka was an under, undersized, underachieving um, uh, tight end, essentially. And, 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 uh, and, and Carl Ashman saw something in him and took him out individually and worked with him in, 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 on blocking schemes and, and how to catch the ball and, and really made him into a player and in many ways, through Ditka, created the template of the great Aliquippa player. Did you talk to Mike Ditka for this book? I did. I did. What does he remember about Aliquippa? Well, he loves it. Does he still go back? He doesn't go back as often, although he, I think two years ago he went back and spoke to the high school. He's, he, Mike was always very giving to the football team and the football program in the town. His mother lived there up until her death a, a few years ago. She, she stayed in the, the place where he grew up. She refused to move out, Linmar, um, because that's where she, that was the, that was the world she knew. Um, and, um, you know, he also lived there in the great days. I mean, in some ways, Mike did is a puzzle because, you know, Mike, I mean, his father was very rough on him. And Mike, Mike had a real tough time with his dad until later years when he sort of said, well, I kind of understand why he, he took to me with that Marine belt, his U.S. Marine belt. And, and, and uh, you know, he, he 
he once talked about how his dad uh, laid a hand on his mom as well, and he once said to his mom, Mom, I'm, uh, this is when he first went off to college, I'm, I'm going to get a big car someday, I'm going to be big and rich, and I'm going to get a car, and you can ride in it, but Daddy can't. And so, you know, he had a fire burning from that, but Mike came from an Aliquippa that was flush. Uh, this is Mike, Mike came up in the 50s, and um, his dad was a burner uh, for the railroad at the mill, and uh, which is uh, working with acetylene torches and, and that kind of thing, and would come home with burns on his shirts and his hands scarred up and everything else. And he had to be in bed by seven, you know, seven, nine o'clock at night. Um, you didn't sit down at the table till dad sat down at the table. And so he came from that background, but, but this was a town that was, uh, this is when Aliquippa had 35 bars downtown and, and payday uh, was, was like New Year's Eve. Um, you know, they, it really was it was an incredible scene down there. And you had the shifts, three shifts a day going in and out of the mill and um, just a, a hive of activity. Um, so his hunger is a little less comprehensible, uh, except on a personal level, uh, than, say, some of the later players who came out and, and saw, well, I, this is my one way out. Uh, for, for Mike, and, and really for that whole generation of players, Football wasn't considered a way out. It was a way to get to college, and it was and, and it was a way to get your academics. And 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 there was no big payday. There were you know these guys, professional football players at that time, were always were working in the off season, um, and so um, uh, essentially it was a, it was a way to to get to college. Well, Carl Ashman, who we were just talking about, the coach, was hired for a pretty good salary at the time to just coach. So they thought highly enough of the Absolutely. football program to have somebody only be the football coach. Yeah, he did teach a little bit. I mean, he, he, he taught um, uh, was it ethics of democracy, or I can't remember the exact name, but he, he, he taught one, one or two classes, but he was not known as a teacher. Let's put it that way. Carl Ashman was there because he was a football coach. And did they win a lot under him? Oh, yeah, they won three. W he, he set the tone. They, they won three um, uh, WPIL. The first football championship was won under Carl Ashman. Um, and and uh, that was in '52, and then Ditka won was on the team as a junior that won the second one. Um, they didn't win his senior year, and then Ditka after that season played basketball for Press Maravich. Uh, didn't love Press Maravich, but also was annoyed by Press's 13-year-old uh, son, who was a better shooter than everybody. Ended up being Pete Maravich, the great uh, basketball player. And, and during a game, Mike Ditka was so angry about, about missing on a play that he smashed his hand against the wall and broke his hand. I want to also ask you about uh, Mike Zmijanic? Zmijanic. Zmijanic? Zmijanic, yep. Mike Zmijanic is, is still, to this day, um, the Aliquippa football coach. Um, he is a, an interesting figure because um, Mike grew up in Aliquippa, but he wasn't born there, and he never played football. Um, he was sort of a sandlot basketball player, um, but he was, he was, he's an extremely smart guy. He was an English teacher at Aliquippa High for a very long time, and he um, uh, was very smart and very sharp and, and, a, and a good coach of basketball. And um, Don Yanessa, who was a famous, uh, really the, sort of in some ways the drum major of, of Western PA coaches for a while uh, in, the, in the 70s and 80s, and... Uh, and uh, was a consultant on all the right moves, a Tom Cruise move, football movie, um, and finagled a way into, into the movie itself as the opposing team coach, hired Mike Zmianek and said, you know, I can teach you about football, but, but uh, uh, he saw something in him as a, as a coach. And Mike Zmianek is now, has been coaching, 
for since 97, I believe, and he's you know now the all-time winningest coach in, in Aliquippa history. And you mentioned Mike Ditka's father. Mike Ditka's father was sitting in a bar when a race riot broke out. Yeah. Yeah, he was. Uh, uh, that 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 wasn't unusual. Um, Savin's Savin's bar I, uh, was where Mike Dicka's dad was. It's, it was fairly close to his house in Linmar, and and um, this was a time when, um, starting in the schools in the '70s, um, really racial problems. And 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 again, this was reflective of, of of racial tensions all over the country in the late '60s and '70s. Uh, but in Aliquippa, it really blew up, and uh, and. Uh, there was a time when, um, as, as Charlotte Ditka put it to me, uh, the blacks were coming to, to take over, uh, you know, our, t our part of town or whatever, and and uh, and Mike was down there, and and it became a time where uh, in Aliquippa, um, uh, there was nothing happened to, to to little Mike Ditka, as, as as the dad was called by some, because he was smaller than than the Mike Ditka we know that night, but you know there were there were sort of renegade. Um, uh, I don't know how to put the security. I mean, basically, uh, uh, each each section of town sort of got like guys would walk would would patrol uh, from that town, not police, but but citizens basically get up these these ad hoc sort of uh, random groups to to patrol and quote unquote protect their part of town. And guys were, you know, falling asleep in trees with guns and falling out of the trees and patrolling. And it, it really was a wonder. Uh, because you had Aliquippa for a certain time was was, was a semi-armed camp in, in these neighborhoods, and it, it was a miracle that that nobody really got got killed. Because for a long time the tensions were very high. And you're right about how those tensions reflected in the football team. And you say in 1972, football games on Saturday afternoon, whites sat on the home side and blacks sat on the field across the field. The seats reserved for visitors. The head coach gave his weekly chalk talks to two separate booster clubs, one night to the Whites at Ukrainian Club and the next to the Blacks at the Quippian Club. When it came time for the annual team banquet, the Quippian would hold its at the end of November for black families, and the Ukrainian would hold its a few weeks later in December for white families. Right. And this was the same football team. Yeah, and, and the team was a disaster. What, what I mean is there were very few players on it. I think it was down to 19 at one point, uh, total players. And this this is sort of the the... The residue of, of the racial tension in the town. It was really ugly from 69 to about 72. And that's when Don Yanessa was across the river coaching in Ambridge and listening to these radio reports, police radio reports, of all the difficulties in his own, his former hometown. And and basically saying, thank God we're not there now. This is this is brutal. But then he went back and took over the program. And and it took a while. Uh, and he really made efforts with um, a gentleman named Charlie Lay, a black steel worker who was who was very instrumental in sort of crossing lines in the town and, and drinking together with whites and 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 bringing the whites and blacks together. And essentially, in the late '70s, um, uh, this this one team uh, and, and a cadre of black and white players, uh, Dan Short, uh, Sherman McBride, both of whom are coaches on the team today. Uh, Dan Metropolis and others, there were about three or four or five of them, uh, got together, black and white, and, and, and basically made a pronouncement. I mean, Yanessa, the coach, was ready to give up, and he said, this is your team. You guys have got to somehow figure this out because, uh, because we're at a loss here. The, the divide here is just, is just brutal, and it's killing us as players, and your futures are on the line. So the players took hold, black and white, and, and, and basically said, if you're with us, you're, you're with this whole, you know, people saying the N-word and people saying honky and everything else is out. 
um, we're going to be together. And uh, the team did come together. And in many ways, it provided a, a healing of that breach in the town. Um, then Yanessa got the, 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 um, the crowds to sit together, black and white, and the, and the booster clubs were, um, were melded. Um, and it became a different feeling in town. Now, no one's foolish enough to say that black-white relations you know, were perfect after that. But um, the team really became the fulcrum of it, and it was really considered sort of unacceptable to sort of, to sort of infuse the team with, with sort of the racial tensions from outside, and it became sort of a beacon in the town for, for race relations. When did crack become a problem? Well, when it became a problem everywhere, which was, you know, late, mid, mid to late 80s, and, um, you know, it became, a, a, look, this, you had... And, and let, me, let me speak to that directly and take it from the previous story. So, so Sherm McBride and, and Dan Short were best friends and are best friends to this day. Um, Dan Short, after going to Pitt, Sherman, Sherman McBride, he was a, he was a, a cornerback. Uh, Sherman McBride was a running back. They're best friends. Sherm went off to, to Ohio University. Dan Peep Short is his nickname, uh, went, went to Pitt. Short comes home, becomes a cop. And once the mill goes down, you suddenly had mill workers who had never gotten in any trouble um, all of a sudden you're hearing stories getting picked guys are getting arrested guys are you know they're obviously people leaving town looking for work but those left behind keep thinking the steel mill is going to come back but they have to feed their families and suddenly wives who had never been hit before were getting hit and crimes were being committed by guys who who never had gotten into trouble and and one of them was Sherman McBride's brother and and eventually he was picked up for selling product and, and Dan Short was incredible friends of the family um, and, and, and Sherm's brother would come over to his house and Dan Short would, uh, Dan, uh, would go over to, to McBride's house and they'd have dinner and he'd call um, Sherm's mother mom and, and finally one day Short went to, went to the house and said, said mom, um, uh, Grover is, 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 is getting in the way, I keep hearing his name, meaning he's in trouble and he's, and he's dealing drugs. And so it ended up that uh, Dan Short had arrested his best friend's brother twice and sent him to jail for the first time. And that was not uncommon. It was, it was what was happening in the town, and it was a way for, in many ways, for, for people to deal with the, the closing of the mills in terms of, like, taking themselves out of it uh, mentally or psychologically, somehow ease the pain of it, and also to try and earn money. And so crack became a very big problem in town. You write uh, here that... Is it any wonder that in the late 1980s, the game got bigger? Once merely the vessel of local pride, football in Aliquippa now assumed deeper resonance, even greater import. It was as if those who remained sensed the worst. This is it. This is what is, what is left. Football is the end game, the gritty final distillation of the dream that our great-grandfathers came here to dream. Yeah. I, Pretty grim. It, and, it, and it was grim. And, 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 you know, this is, look, I think, the one reason I wrote this book is because to me Aliquippa is emblematic, um, but it, it's not it's not it's unique in that it's it's um, representative in the extreme. But there are many towns like Aliquippa. There are many places that that suddenly were gutted by the end of 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 the whatever the company town was built for steel or coal or or, or textiles, and and you see them all over the country now. These are these are towns that are hollowed out, and and Aliquippa is a place that's just like them only only more so and 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 it and football ended up because they still produce these great players 
Um, I mean, they're, they're still um, doing it to this day. I mean, there's only, there's, I think there was 31 boys on the, on the current football team this year, and yet um, they were in the championship game, and, and they had gone up to AAA. They were a single-A team playing a 3A football. And so in the midst of this negativity, the football team gained even more importance, not just as an avenue out, because you had all these former players making millions, former Aliquippa players suddenly on Sunday playing and, and signing big contracts like Darrell Revis or Ty Law. Um, but it also was the one place to go during the week for relief from really a, a ravaged downtown and a, and a future that was truly uncertain. Is there any reason for optimism? Well, the, yeah, Aliquippa is in a really funny place. Uh, uh, and I don't mean funny in a good way, haha. -ha. I mean it's 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 a company town without a company. It's a the reason for being. I mean Pittsburgh, for example, is one of the great recovery stories of uh, of of the last twenty years. Um, but it had other assets going for it. It had healthcare. It had it had uh, the great bones of a city. It's a beautiful place, and uh, it had uh, uh, universities. Um, Alquip was built for one thing. It was built for this one company in this one industry. And the problem with company towns like Aliquippa that are too far out, I mean, there, there are closer towns that were ravaged by the end of the steel industry, like Wilkinsburg, but that's very close to, say, to Pittsburgh. So it has, uh, Wilkinsburg has a, a pretty good chance of, of, of being part of the Pittsburgh miracle because it's, it's right there. It's, it's an adjunct of, of Pittsburgh. Aliquippa is 25 miles outside, and um, it really needs... Um, it needs a uh, another company to move in there. The problem, of course, is that the nature of industrialization, the nature of work, has changed so much and so rapidly just in the last ten years, much less the last thirty. Um, you know, if a steel mill that was producing the exact same amount of steel that 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 J and L did um, and employed fourteen thousand workers to do it moved into Aliquippa today, it, it might have fourteen hundred workers. And look, there's 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 talk about there, there's a um, uh, the natural gas industry has obviously they, uh, it sits astride the Marcellus Shale like like many towns. So there's great hope that perhaps there'll be spillover. There's a plant going up nearby, and there's going to be a spillover to jobs in that re respect. So there's there's hope, but um, you know so far the trends are all shrinkage and going downward. I hate to end on a negative note, yeah. but we're unfortunately out of time. I wish we had more time to talk. We've been speaking with S.L. Price. He is the author of this book, Playing Through the Whistle, the story of Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.